shift happens. Indeed, it does. And this year, well, it seems it happened in spades because everywhere you look, the rules are changing. Acquisition alone doesn't cut it. It's all about joining acquisition and retention engagement all together. And marketers have to look at the entire journey. Sounds like a lot of heavy lifting, but the good news is there's loads of opportunity that make it worth the effort. And today on The Groove, we're going to talk about what you need to future-proof and have a future-focused approach with someone, I think, whose middle name could actually be Change because he started out as an electrical engineer by trade. He found his true passion in understanding consumer psychology and why people buy what they buy. So after a decade of engineering, he broke out, spent many years in B2B electronic sales, managing multi-million dollar accounts, multi-billion dollar companies before transitioning into marketing. And he's here with us today, Jim Lorraine, head of growth at AMP. First of all, it's great to have you here. And uh, yes, what a shift. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I always joke that when people ask, where do you want to see yourself in five years? Where do you want to be in five years? I've never answered that question correctly. <laughs> well, you can't predict this one, I swear, you know. But here you are, in a way, you've gone full circle because predicting and understanding why people do what they do why they buy what they buy, what makes them tick. So maybe we just start off with a little bit of a high level, quick view into your work, your responsibility, and what AMP is. You're right, I never thought about that, but it is a good circle. Uh, engineers are all about data, uh, and marketing used to say they were about data, but we never really had the capabilities to actually use or take advantage of all the data that we have. So AMP is a company that's focused on user engagement. We have a platform that's focused on user engagement. And unlike most other platforms that were formed by software engineers, uh, we were actually formed by data scientists. So everything we do is very, very much focused on data, the data behind user engagement, how to increase user engagement, how to increase retention, all the things that we care about, but from a very, very data focused and that's what makes this very interesting as a show, because it is about joining that up, but it's not about joining up acquisition, retention, engagement the way we used to. We need to think about things in a different way. When we looked at the landscape, we saw two very interesting things. Uh, one is the tool set. So the tool sets available to performance marketers are usually quite advanced, like lookalike audiences and things like that. Um, whereas with lifecycle, it's more of a flow chart, right? The tools are much, much more basic. But the interesting piece, the second piece of that, was the amount of data you actually have is so much more and so much better on the lifecycle side than it is on the performance side. So when you look at it, it's actually very interesting. The second thing that we kind of focus on, and this gets more into the numbers, we did a quick napkin sketch, napkin study of 30 million users and found that the majority of them, and I'm talking 90 to 95% for the typical app, are what we call dormant or lurking. So they're people who have maybe been on the app in like the past 14 days or month, but haven't like done anything. So if you're e-commerce, they haven't transacted or they haven't done any of the important events you think about. So not only are we looking at the user landscape and what data you have or don't have and how many users there are or not in each bucket, um, but also how many users are in each state in your app. So what we have right now is a leaky bucket, basically. We pull in so many people, and then the stat is somewhere around 25% of people only use your app once. And then, like we said, they very quickly turn into inactive or dormant users. So our hypothesis and what we've seen prove out 
is if you can get even just a small sliver of that 90 to 95 percent of your user population that's currently inactive to engage it will dwarf the like two to five percent of newer active users that you have on your app and again you have them in your app they were there i mean that big barrier of getting them to download the app you cross that hurdle right yep that's huge i remember we talked about 2500 meditation apps have launched since 2020 there's almost 500,000 gaming apps so yes so getting someone on your app getting someone to download your app is a giant hurdle to have 90 to 95 percent of them very quickly fall into being inactive as if they weren't there at all is a is a problem all the more reason that app companies companies with apps even if they're just a real company and have an app they need to be thinking about what's coming and do you want to compete to acquire users or do you want to perfect what you're doing to retain them yet Marketers aren't thinking like we are, Jim. We're here, we're saying, yes, absolutely. It makes sense to approach the opportunity in this way. Yeah, this is this is kind of one thing that we stumbled upon, not on purpose, was the realization that when we use triggers, which is really common in CRM and lifecycle, um, we're looking into the past. So we're looking for a cart abandoned. We're looking for, you know, if someone has made a purchase or if somebody is inactive, if they haven't done anything in seven days this is going to mess with your brain. But that's something they have done. They have not done anything in seven days. Right. So everything we're doing is looking in the past, but we don't need to do it that way. And actually going back to the inactive user thing, this actually creates an act inactive users. Because if you haven't purchased anything, then you won't get those messages. If you haven't subscribed, then you won't get those messages. And once you've exceeded your, you know, I haven't been here in seven days, I get the messages. If I haven't done anything, I won't get messages. So then you're at the mercy of the daily ad hoc messages, which usually have less strategy. So actually using this past tense triggered approach, which is incredibly common in CRM, actually creates inactive users. So apps have this thing called an event stream. And every app has it and you have to have it because that's how you know if somebody clicked or tapped on something and what to do it is every marketer's dream any marketer in any other industry if they didn't have an app if they had access to event stream data and we're talking every interaction with every user time stamped every single event if anyone had that kind of data it would be insane right you everyone would be singing from the hills because we don't we don't have anything like that usually uh, in any other type of marketing so the problem is with apps, usually that data lives in some kind of data warehouse amplitude or something. And you might query it once in a while, like how many users have bought a certain item in the past X time frame, but it's really not using the data for what you could be using it for. So what we do is we ingest all of that data. And I said all, um, cause I mean all <laughs> we ingest all of the data and use it basically with what AI is great for, which is pattern recognition. So if I can grab all of that data and then I can find patterns within that data, I can actually use it to instead of say, like send something to who purchased, I could say to send someone who is about to purchase, send someone who is about to churn. And we can even get more granular because of the amount of data we have. We can say send to somebody who's 20% likely to purchase or send to somebody who's 80% likely to purchase. So it kind of takes even the concept of predictive analytics to the next level because we're getting really, really refined in the predictions that we're allowed to make and we're able to make. This is 
first of all, it's a treasure trove, right? It's untapped. A lot of marketers aren't making use of it because they probably aren't really certain what it is. Or as you said yourself, it's somewhere away in, you know, an amplitude or wherever, which is absolutely fine, but you're not querying it. You're not interacting with it. You're, they're not, to your point, as an amp, ingesting it. How can marketers use it to really get closer to future behavior and ultimately the future wins? So again, when we're doing our past tense triggering, we're looking at who purchased or who abandoned or who subscribed, we're looking at an individual user, right? So you yourself have purchased, I message you. It's a one-to-one, -one, you, you. When we are able to use event stream data effectively, we can look at other people find similarities between those people and you, and then see if we apply a treatment, which is a data science term, but basically if we send you a message, right? We're giving you some kind of stimulus, what are you doing with it? If we apply a treatment, what did they do versus what did you do? That's where the future prediction comes from. The challenge in a lot of organizations is actually an organizational problem. To get and use that data, you need to pull on your engineering team, or you need to pull on your data science team, or you need to pull on some other team, basically, because most marketers can't can't do this on their own. Um, I've met several that are savvy that can, very rare though, and we all have many jobs to do, right? Um, so that we see as a tool set problem, which is why we created the tool that we did. So you can do it on your own. It's, it's a lot of handholding with your data science and engineering team to basically take that data, run it through a propensity model. You know, that's gonna be static. So you need a way to continuously regenerate, and then you need a way to act on the insights that you've built. Uh, that's essentially the system that we built. And a big point you made, Jim, it needs to adapt. It needs to be adaptive. And that's where AI and machine learning come in, but that's certainly not where most marketing teams excel. Uh, but one thing to your point with adaptivity that nobody talks about or thinks about is when does your A-B test expire? So that's been one great question for me. But it's like, if I find out checkout worked better than buy now, how long is that valid for? Because the other thing is, it's it's not even just your environment, but it's like if the biggest player in the market changes how they do it, that may change your results. So A-B testing, it's human's best attempt, I think. And there is merit to it in a lot of cases. Um, but yes, that's I think that's the best we can do. And it, it, it fails when compared to AI as far as adaptability, yes. Well, it's pretty mind-blowing in a way that the data can tell us so many things that we're not listening to or not framing the way that we could or should as marketers. You're doing this. This is what you do at AMP. Maybe you can give me an example of how marketers can, can push the boundary, you know, open the aperture of how they view engagement and their customer base. What Let me give you two things that I think are interesting. Um, the first is if we even want to look at triggering on events, which is what most people do, the data has shown us time and time again that the events we look at are wrong. We assume like a purchase leads to activity or like general activity leads to subscription, like whatever, we usually use that proxy, right? So we're saying if someone uses, you know, a workout app, if somebody works out continuously every day, they will resubscribe. What we found by actually crunching the data is like, eh, like purchases are maybe 50% indicative of somebody who sticks around. Uh, working out might be 50, 60%. Like, yeah, okay, it's something, but it's not really the most sticky event. So by plugging that data into a propensity model, which is what we do with all the app events, and then we watch everyone who does those events, and then we actually look, are they around a month later, two months later, six months later, whatever window, we find that those events like working out and purchasing are actually 
not the most impactful ones. With a workout app, as an example, we saw that actually clicking share your workout, so like sharing that you did a workout on social media, was much more indicative of someone who would stick around than somebody who just worked out, right? So what should we focus on? Uh, two different e-commerce apps, I thought this was interesting. One of them, the biggest indicator of churn was someone checking out with a gift card. So if your first purchase was a gift card, you're likely to not stick around. So what can we do to help encourage retention? Um, for a completely different one, it was adding something to your wish list. So if you add it to your wish list, I think in your mind, you like closed out an item. Okay, I put it somewhere. I can go do other things and not think about it anymore. And then those people ended up churning. So again, it's different for every app, but doing that can help you find huge areas where you can move the needle in retention. The second thing, which is really interesting is if you do this, uh, if you understand how to do this and you understand if somebody is likely or not likely to make a purchase, you can do incredible things with like discounting, for example. Um, so everyone talks about discounts. Discounts are really popular. To me, they're like the lowest common denominator. If you don't know what to say to anybody, throw them a discount, right? Which is why so much messaging that gets sent out is discount focused. But if I find that you are 80, 90% likely to buy anyway, I can send you a much smaller discount as an incentive than if you are less likely to buy. And arguably, if you're below 50% likely to buy something, I should just send you a product recommendation. But by doing this, we're able to greatly help increase number one conversion rates, but two margin, because I'm not sending the same giant discount to everybody, both to people who aren't interested and need a recommendation and people who are very likely to buy anyway, in which case I'm just paying you to do what you were about to do anyway. So this stuff has huge impacts on businesses' bottom line because they never think about things like, what discount should I send based on how likely someone is to buy? It's a mental shift, but it's, it's, it's massive. It is a mental shift. And to your point, this is like the pre-pre-indicator in behavior. But what you're calling it is um, propensity triggering, not modeling, triggering. And that's a new construct, maybe even a new buzzword we're going to hear in the new year, judging from the conversations I've been hearing and seeing, because I have been looking at what you've been sharing recently, Jim, on social. That's why you're here on the show. You know, you are quite a champion of propensity triggering. And I'd like you to unpack it here for our audience so that we're absolutely both on the same page. Yep. Um, so propensity modeling is the data science term, right? There's a model, you feed a model and you get data out. But triggering is taking and using that data from the model uh, to drive future action. So like we talked about, most people are doing event triggering right now, which is that past tense term. Um, triggering on propensities is pr triggering on the likelihood that someone will do something in the future. Uh, and it's much more effective and it's also very individualized. So uh, one example I was talking about today with someone actually is most apps have like a rigid period at which they consider someone inactive. So if you haven't done anything in seven days, then you're inactive and I send you things. But that doesn't make sense because some people have different purchasing patterns. Look at like back to school. Some people might pop in and spend $500 on back to school things once a year. That doesn't make them a bad user. That's just their routine is the once a year. And maybe you can get some incremental stuff otherwise, but you shouldn't consider them dead after seven days. Send them reactivation, send them discounts. They're not going to respond to that. So event triggering would be, you haven't been here in seven days, 14 days a month. Uh, triggering on propensities would say, how likely is that person to actually leave? So if we didn't see those little pre-purchase indicators leading up to that big back to school sale, now we'd activate because we're like, ooh, they might be looking at you know Target instead of our store this year. 
um, and we and we can act on that. So that's what propensity triggering is. It's actually setting our triggers or deciding when we are going to do something, activate, reactivate a user, send them something based on future likelihoods. So we're using that future likelihood to actually trigger our messaging. And that future view, that future focus, that allows you also to prioritize future opportunities, future marketing efforts at a time when you have to do a lot more with a lot less. I'd like to understand what excites you about this topic, where you see this going. Like look at recommender systems. So recommender systems, most people understand, right? It's how Netflix shows you what movie you want to watch. It's how Amazon shows you what you're going to buy next. What they're not used to is like, let's apply that recommender now to not just a product recommendation. Let's apply it to what messaging you should get. Let's apply it to when you should get a message. So I think this framework of a recommender, which you can look up all the stats and see recommenders are fantastic, right? They, they work and they convert. So if you take that same concept and you apply it now to almost every element of a user, you create that individualized user experience that so many other people only talk about. Because now I'm recommending what message I should send, what product it should contain, if it should contain a product, what discount, if it should contain a discount, what content, if it should contain content, and you know what time to which individual user. It's just, it's really just a recommender system that's applied to every element of a user experience. Um, so I think in the future, people talk about building those individualized, fully you know, autonomous user journey, that kind of thing. This is really how we get there. And it's based on that backbone of propensities which feed into recommenders. And then you build on top of that with your intelligence and your observations and knowing what you do about, about so many customers. So it makes a lot of sense. I'd just like to maybe have you comment on the uplift. We've seen it work in the case of Amazon and elsewhere. How do you see that playing out in messaging? Yep. Oh, we see it quite a bit. Um, there are a ton of stats off the top of my head. The thing to emphasize is that, and this is, again, from working with data scientists, everyone can give you a single number, but your number will vary based on based on your individual experience. Just because of you are active at a certain time doesn't mean I should assume you're always active at the same time. You may be, but that's something I need to learn. I should be recommending the next time I think you'll be available. So this is why timing optimization is really important and not sending it past times or future times. Why I bring up timing. We've discovered whole new markets for customers based on just timing optimization. One quick example was we were sending messages. The system was, the AI was, we, we weren't manually holding a TAN. Uh, it found a very small group of users who were active in the middle of the night. And this was for a food delivery service that was in Southeast Asia. You know, they originally came to us and said, why are you sending people messages in the middle of the night? This is a horrible user experience. What we found out is that these users worked on farther eastern time zones. So there are people in Southeast Asia, but they worked at the US time zones and they worked you know, with Europe and things like that. So this was their lunchtime was in the middle of the night. So in timing, we've also discovered like you know, in e-commerce that most people window shop at night, but actually convert during the day. So it's like when you're chasing clicks, you focus on the night versus the day. We can go into stats and numbers, but it's like there's there's so much richness in the data that you uncover with each of these use cases that is just insane and so much beyond what people are used to seeing when you only send your messages or you only test between like 6 and 7 p.m. or between only two variants of a message or you only have, you know, five segments or 10 segments or 20 segments sounds amazing, 
but it's not this individualized level. It's it's a total game changer when it comes to user engagement and activation. I'm watching the conversations out there. I'm looking in social, I'm seeing what are people talking about? What are they excited about? And uh, your presentations recently, well, they were interesting and they had resonated with a lot of people. Some people saying like, oh, you know, I've got to challenge this, but but in a good way, in an intellectual discussion and discourse. So what is actually the response and what are you thinking about next, Jim? Because uh, you are certainly uh, a machine on social, I have to say. Maybe that goes back to your own roots because uh, you had a content company before you came to AMP and uh, and LinkedIn was your place. So what's what's up, what's, what's next? What do we need to look for? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, first of all, thank you very much. Those, that was a lot of fun putting those presentations together. Um, our goal was to try to drop something that's very much unlike what most people are hearing. And what most people are hearing is let's take a look at this one, this one user journey and see how Duolingo is doing it or, or something like that. Um, and those, those kind of things tend to do very well. What we have is very, very different. Uh, so what my challenge is, which sounds really funny at this point, is just making it more accessible. So making what we have more accessible and understandable because it is, it is quite a, a different way of doing things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's kind of like, where do I find my place in this new world and things like that. So uh, a lot of my focus is on, on that, which is where a lot of this propensity stuff has come from. Um, expect to see more of that. And then also I'm finding little niches where certain apps are doing it or you're seeing like, apps play with it or do some interesting things with their messaging. So we're I'm taking some deep dives into some of those. It should be pretty interesting. But yeah, anybody who is interested, feel free to reach out or any questions or topics or anything that we discussed, I'd be more than happy to talk about. Well, we'll continue with that thought, Jim, because where can they reach out to you? Oh, man, LinkedIn is my probably my primary channel or email. But LinkedIn is I, I monitor that LinkedIn inbox almost like my my actual email box. So that'd probably be the best way. Everyone is more than a title. And I do like to wrap up the show with a human touch because we're talking about engagement. If that isn't human, what is? In your free time, you shared with me, you enjoy playing the banjo and you have, as you've put it in your own words, a veritable armada of children. So I got to ask, I was reading that saying, okay, so I've got a bite. How many? Five, but oh. I'm not, uh, there's no... I'm not saying that there won't be more in the future, oh but goodness. that's where we sit right now. Beautiful. <laughs> I love the big family thing. I, I grew up as an only child, um, so it was kind of new to me, and my wife was one of four. So having experienced, being able to experience a big family, especially through something like COVID, um, I, I wasn't feeling alone. <laughs> I wasn't feeling alone in COVID. I was trying to get out of the house. Um but it's, it's a totally cool experience. You know, it's not just your family. It's your extended family. I think you're somewhere near Kalamazoo and you like account for a significant percentage of your local town population. Yes. So we lived in Kalamazoo for quite a while and then moved out into the country. So there's actually a little town called Goebbels, which is spelled almost like Gobbles, but with one B. Uh, and there are 800 and I think we're up to 805. So I think my family pushed us over the 800 mark. So I think we make up 0.1%-ish of the population of my town, which is amazing. We started with data, we end with data, we got 0.1%, everything comes back, and everything comes around. Jim, 
I want to thank you for sharing. And above all, we will have how to contact you in the show notes and uh, have you back again after you've put out a few more of those presentations that, uh, that get the conversation going on social. So thanks so much. Thank you.